This isn't inevitable. These kids weren't unlucky. This only happens in this country and nowhere else. Nowhere else do little kids go to school thinking that they might be shot that day. Nowhere else do parents have to talk to their kids, as I have had to do, about why they got locked into a bathroom and told to be quiet for five minutes just in case a bad man entered that building. Nowhere else does that happen except here in the United States of America, and it is a choice. It is our choice to let it continue. What are we doing? That was Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy addressing the Senate on Tuesday afternoon after the gut-wrenching news out of Texas. Another school massacre in which 22 people were killed, 19 of them young children. Murphy could barely control himself. It was in his state where 10 years ago there had been another slaughter at Sandy Hook Elementary School where 26 people were killed, 20 of them school children. Yet no matter how many of these senseless tragedies, the Congress of the United States remains hopelessly deadlocked when it comes to passing sensible gun control measures that might, at least might, make even a small difference. Is there nothing that could change the iron grip of the gun lobby on the United States Congress? We'll talk to Ryan Bussey, who once worked in the gun industry himself and is now the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. It is so hard to listen to Senator Chris Murphy giving that talk, uh, just as it was so difficult for anybody to absorb the news out of Texas. But it does just leave the question of that was Murphy was hanging over all of us. What are we doing? What possibly can be done? to stop this just sort of seemingly uh, endless parade of shooting massacres. I mean, you know, we just had Buffalo and now we have this, you know, one after another. And it's as though this has become a pandemic in and of itself. Yeah, I, I think that fury that you heard in Chris Murphy's voice, the rage reflects a feeling that you know so many Americans have right now. And we saw the same thing in this extraordinary scene earlier today on Wednesday when Beto O'Rourke showed up at the press conference given by Texas officials, Governor Abbott, the lieutenant governor, and other officials. And... Um, protested them as they were talking about mental health issues and, you know, how we have to think about the children and the families, but said nothing about guns. And Beto O'Rourke essentially heckled them and said, you know, this is on you. You haven't done anything. And it's this sense of, of kind of impotence 
And it's worse than that. It's it's the sense that we know how to fix this. We know that there are ways to, to, to make progress here, but nobody is doing it because nobody has the will. And that's the impotence that you can't change that. And this, you know, I, I'm not going to say that this is different from any other time because we've said that before and then nothing changes. But in terms of the the emotion that you're hearing, I think it is different. And in the Senate, you know, we heard news today that Chuck Schumer, rather than immediately calling up a piece of legislation for consideration to impose either universal background checks or to ban assault weapons or to ban high capacity ammunition clips, all of which are, you know, kind of policy solutions on the table, has decided not to put something up on the Senate and instead is going to attempt to pursue some sort of bipartisan negotiations, which I suppose does indicate some that hope does spring eternal in Chuck Schumer's heart. Yeah, that 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 was it was really interesting to me because you, you, you would expect that the sort of, you know, the political and the legislative expression of what I was just talking about would be to put a bill on the floor immediately, make these Republicans vote for it. But he's actually trying to find a solution here, trying to find a way to negotiate out of this uh, horrible tragedy. Yeah. Victoria, you worked on these issues in the Senate for years. Uh, I think you were there after Newtown uh, took place 10 years ago. Were you correct? Yeah. yeah and I, I worked with Chris Murphy on his uh, his book about gun violence. Just give us a sense. Is it possible to get anything bipartisan, which is required since we still have the filibuster, passed? Is, is it feasible? I mean, you know, in... In 2013, I guess about, you know, four months uh, after Newtown, after many, many months of intense negotiations and and with the, the Newtown families showing up on the doorsteps of virtually every Republican senator, there was a bipartisan bill. It was by two people who are still in the Senate, Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, a Democrat and a Republican who came up with a compromise legislation. And after all of that extraordinary effort, it failed. The legislation got, I think, three or four Republican votes. And that was it. And that'd be enough to pass today. Not with the filibuster in place. So, you know, it's it's you know, as long as the filibuster is in place, it's really hard to imagine that the Democrats are going to somehow or another find 10 Republican votes for this. But they're going to try, which I suppose is the is the right thing to do rather what, than what, what, what's you know. what's the bipartisan compromise that Schumer would be thinking he might be able to get out of this. I mean, I imagine it's going to be a reprise of the Mansion Toomey proposal, which was in effect universal background checks, which to be, you know, kind of frank is clearly not anything that would have had any impact on the Uvalde shootings and that would not have had an effect on many of the mass shootings that we're talking about. But it does seem to be the one piece of legislation that that uh, people kind of can rally around. And that is essentially, I think, as many people know, most gun sales occur through federal firearm licensees. These are the people who are licensed by the federal government to sell firearms. They are required to conduct background checks before they sell a gun to anyone uh, to determine whether or not the person is a felon, has a previous felony conviction or a variety of other disabilities that bar them from being able to get a gun. But many people go to gun shows where no background check is required and buy their guns there. A couple of points on this, because you hear this argument constantly 
from opponents of gun safety measures, well, a background check wouldn't have made a difference here, or this wouldn't have made a difference. A couple of things. One is that it may not have made a difference in this particular case, but let's remember that the vast majority of people who die from gunshot wounds are not people who die in mass shootings. They're spouses who kill each other. They're friends who get in fight and kill each other. They're people who commit suicide. And that's, and, that's the vast majority of suicides. That is the suicides. And, and, and this legislation would have an effect in many of those uh, cases. That's, that's one. And the second thing is, you know, at a certain point, a country, a society has to be able to say, okay, we can actually do something about the insane number of guns out there in this country, 400 million guns, more guns than citizens that we, that, that, that we have. If you don't do anything, you are in effect creating a permission structure for people to go out, get these guns and do horrible things. And you just have to do something at some point. It's as simple as that. By the way, I, I was just going to add, you know who's not deadlocked or stopped by a filibuster? The uh, U.S. Supreme Court, which has a major gun case on its docket that will be coming down in the next few weeks. So, And, and the, U, the same court that has affirmed uh, that the Second Amendment provides a constitutional right for people to own firearms. It's just, it's not about state militias per the Supreme Court. It's about an individual right, which, you know, is built in right now to our constitutional architecture. And I, yeah, I'm Mike, not that, sure that, how you get around that. Well, no one's, no one if with universal background checks or many of the other proposals is actually proposing to eliminate guns or the right to well, they, they own just guns. Said we, have, we have to do something about the 400 million guns in this country. What? They're there. I, are we going to confiscate them? I, I'm, I mean, yes, that might be in an ideal world the thing to do, but politically and constitutionally, it would be impossible. But no one's no one's suggesting that. And and no one's suggesting that that's the only solution. Everyone agrees that, you know, we can make incremental improvements bit by bit. You know, one one saved life at a time, one slight alteration in our nation's kind of addiction to these extraordinary instruments of violence. Yeah. My sense is what's going on now is, you know, we've got a wave of copycats going on that once this happens, it just unleashes this, you know, virus that then spreads. I mean, social media plays a big role and disaffected folks, you know, kids everywhere, you know, go down these rabbit holes, buy these guns and commit these massacres. And, and this know, is a perfect uh, segue to our conversation. Social phenomenon. This is a perfect segue to our conversation with uh, with Ryan uh, Bussey. He he writes in his book about the marketing of these weapons and tactical gear to young people on social media, tapping into all of these kinds of vulnerabilities, and you know, creating you know, sort of a a, a, a militarization and a militarized mentality of young people in this country. Just one quick question for you, Victoria, on this, because it seemed to me after Newtown, and I, and I covered Newtown, and I, I just remember how, you know, just how emotional that was, you know, probably the, the, the most emotional story I ever had to cover. And it sort of, what leapt out of me is, you know, 
certain basic things, high capacity magazines. What is the justification for high capacity magazines? Why couldn't we do something about that? This this rise of tactical gear and uh, and armor, uh, you know, it seems like there could be legislative fixes on those fronts, no? Well, I mean, both of those were actually pursued and were part of the effort in the wake of Sandy Hook. So the, there was a kind of a, a, a set of things that people were looking for, universal background checks, banning high capacity ammunition clips, banning assault weapons were, were all on the table. The only thing that made it through to get any sort of bipartisan support was the universal background checks. What what was the objection to high capacity uh, doing something about high capacity magazines? I mean, I'm not the person to ask Mike. I mean, I I don't know. I, I just like you know, I it's 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 a mystery to me why you never know when like those you know all those the, the, the deer uh, those yeah. those white tailed deer come running at you you know yeah <laughs> you got to mow them yeah. all down yeah. at <laughs> once and the and the and the tactical you know and the tactical gear thing is a hundred sort of, deer yeah the tactical gear thing is a really interesting question because you know twenty twenty five years ago, the most of the police unions were in favor of restricting access to tactical gear, because if you're, a, you know, an, a law enforcement official, you don't want to have to face off against someone who's got this sort of tactical gear. So they that's exactly what happened in, in, in Buffalo, where right. the, the retired cop security guard who actually takes a takes a shot at, at the killer. He's wearing a, a body armor. Um, nothing had bullets bounce off of him. Um, and then he kills the guy, you know. And so, twenty-five years ago, the, the the at least law enforcement would have been behind an effort to ban wide public sale of tactical gear to the to the general public. But with a kind of slow but steady turn of the of law enforcement unions to a kind of an increasingly you know kind of pro-gun you know extreme Second Amendment positions, they've backed away from that. And their solution to this issue is more kind of increasing uh, kind of an arms race, arm the cops better, give them tanks, rather than ban the body armor um, for kind of the general population. So I think if you've committed a felony, you're not supposed to be able to buy um, body armor. (laughs) You're not allowed, not allowed to buy a gun if you committed a felony. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that I worked on around this time was that uh, that you're also not supposed to be able to buy explosives if you've got a, a felony conviction. But as of, you know, like about 20 years ago, there was no one who was actually checking to see whether or not you had a felony conviction when you walked in to buy a stick of dynamite. So, like, I, I actually worked on the legislation that required that those checks be actually conducted before you sell someone explosives. So that was fun. All right. Well, we've we've got a good guest uh, to talk about this, somebody who knows the gun industry from the inside. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Ryan Bussey, former gun industry executive and the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Ryan, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. All three of you, uh, it's kind of like my book. I wish I didn't have to write it as much as I love all of you. And I'm a fan of this podcast since day one. I wish I didn't have to be here to discuss this stuff, but thanks for having me. I'll start out by asking, what was your reaction to the horrible massacre in Texas this week? 
I guess I think about these things. I, I see a lot of, I, mean, I try to encapsulate all these talking head quotes that I see on all the shows. And, and I get a lot of these trends or these themes, like I'm shocked and I'm surprised and we have something that's broken. And, and like, I, and I just don't believe any of that stuff. I think I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. I don't think we have anything that's broken. I lived inside this system, the creation of this system. And as far as I can see, it's working precisely the way it was designed to work. I mean, I, I just don't understand how we think that we can pump what is the equivalent of lighted matches into, into roomfuls of gasoline and think that we're not going to have an explosion. Uh, any fool could have seen this coming. And it doesn't, doesn't demean the sort of responsible gun ownership that so many Americans adhere to, but this this unhinged, radicalized, militarized stuff that we're doing in all the marketing campaigns is just um, it's just atrocious. Just to elaborate on that, because you're you're laying this at the feet of the gun industry, right? You're talking about a gun industry that recognized uh, that there was a certain segment of the population that was susceptible to radicalization, had already become radicalized, and there was money in all that, right? Well, I think. Yeah, and I'm not foolish enough to think that we that these any of our problems in our country have simplistic answers or causes. Um, I don't believe that. It's something I decry the right for all the time that you know boiling down our issues to these bumper sticker sort of solutions. I don't I don't believe that. So I, Dan, I don't I don't I won't say it's necessarily that simplistic, but I think the gun industry plays a unique role in our politics and in our society because of the way that guns can serve as an intimidating factor as a way for angry people to essentially give the rest of the country a middle finger. They've become symbols for so many hateful organizations, ter domestic terror organizations on the right. Look, 15 years ago, tactical gear like that worn by the Buffalo shooter and to some degree by the Uvalde shooter could not even be displayed in industry trade shows. And the industry sets its, and the firearms industry sets its own rules for its own trade shows. There was no law that mandated this. Everybody in the industry had this understood system of decency where everybody, they knew you can't pump this into a complex society and then fuel it with incendiary marketing campaigns and not have horrible outcomes. But as the NRA perfected this, this system that they have now where we keep the country just one degree below boiling so we can make people vote in irrational ways, well, that hate and fear and conspiracy are exactly the same things that drive gun sales. It just so happened that then you have this sort of unholy alliance. And everybody in the gun industry who once knew that this was bad to do just sort of said, well, you know, it's like pollution. We'll, we'll just let it flow down somebody else's river for somebody else to deal with, right? We'll just diffuse all these things. Well, now it's so prolific at 25 million units a year and more than 500 companies that pump out this, these, this tactical gear with just, if you guys went and looked at the social media accounts of, of these, of these tactical gear companies, like you would have a cow on the spot. It is a mix of softcore porn and um, incendiary political stuff, memes. It's no wonder that 19 year old kids suck up to it. So yeah, I'm not shocked. So let's, let's drill down real quickly on that marketing campaign. Is it targeted at young people? Is it targeted at kids? How much is the industry spending on marketing this sort of equipment and these sort of guns every year? I don't know the number, Victoria, but like 
it's high. And are they marketing young kids? Yes. Why? Because marketing 101, who wants to market to 55-year-olds, right? You're supposed to market to 17, 18, 19-year-olds. That's where all your growth is. And as I came up in the firearms industry starting in 1995, you know, I was a young kid of 25 then. And for the first part of my career, everybody in the industry pretty much assumed like this is a dying industry or it's it's very stagnant. There's not a lot of growth. We only steal market from each other. Um, there's really no way to grow this. Most of, the, most of our customers have increasingly gray hair. That's the way it's going to be. But as the, again, as the NRA tapped into this new militarization and this new radicalization, all of a sudden you had this new, young, sort of militarized demographic that came into the picture buying guns. And almost every company in the industry essentially said, holy shit, we can grow. And so firearm sales almost through, through about 2007 averaged between three and seven million guns a year, right? At when, when all of this sort of NRA-ism started to take over both in our country, but also in the firearms industry, the graph looks like Mount Everest climbing up. And we now are selling 22 to 25 million guns a year. And it's all because of this growth in this younger, more militarized, more sort of faux patriotized demographic that we see. You know, Ryan, I, you know, the, the key question is, what do we do about it? I think, you know, to most folks, uh, you know, certain common sense measures such as universal background checks and, you know, even a ban on assault weapons such as we had for 10 years in the past make total sense. Yet the question is, how much of a difference can any legislative fix make in a country where there are more guns than citizens, 400 million guns out there, gun buying is surging, I'm sure for many of the factors you just mentioned, but also because there is a demand by the public for weapons, especially in a time of rising violence. So I'm just sort of balancing out, yes, of course, sensible gun control measures make sense, but is there a danger in over-hyping or expecting what they can actually accomplish? Yeah, I think there is. I know I know Victoria has put a lot of time and energy into this, and, and I don't know the degree to which she agrees with me here, but two, two things, I guess. First off, I will say we're not going to solve gun violence in the United States, and I'm kind of tired of people setting false expectations and then saying, well, if we can't solve everything, we should do nothing. Look, we still have cigarettes in the United States, but... 15, 18 years ago, we decided to do marginally better things to make the world better. So it's not that people don't die of lung cancer, and it's not that people don't chain smoke once in a while, it's not that you can't buy cigarettes, but we we changed the way that cigarettes are bought and sold and marketed and consumed in America, and I think for the better. We didn't fix it, we just made it better, and we can do that on gun issues. We're still going to have guns, you're right. We've got 200, 283 million licensed automobiles in the United States, look around at the traffic and you think, holy shit, there's a lot of cars. Well, to your point, we've got about 400 million. There's 100 million more guns than there are cars. So guns aren't going away in our society. By the way, Ryan, speaking of of cars, I mean, you, you made the point with cigarettes, but we as a society did the same thing with cars. I mean, if you go yeah. back 50 years, automobile fatalities were way up. We regulated cars. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, well, yeah, one of the main ahead. reasons... And so to Mike's point here, and I think something that a lot, you guys probably know, but I think a lot of your listeners may not know, 2004, George Bush did not renew the assault weapons ban. 
Okay, but that's probably not the most important thing he did with regards to guns. Ten months later, in October of 2005, he did he signed PLACA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And what that bill does, it said some people say, well, it allow, it it makes it so that no gun company can be sued. That's not exactly true. If you're a gun company and you produce a faulty gun, something that blows up in somebody's hand or doesn't function, you can be, still be sued in that way. But any other product to cars, cigarettes, anything else, if you market something irresponsibly and then consumers follow you mark your marketing and they do something irresponsibly, they can be the companies can be held to account for that irresponsibleness. And we and PLACA, Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, precludes that from happening. So what do you have now? 15 years after the passage of PLACA, when you used to have gun names that, that were like the Smith and Wesson 629 or the Rem Remington 700, pretty innocuous names, like that's been replaced by marketing campaigns like the Urban Arms Super Sniper. Like, are you kidding me? The Ultimate Arms Warmonger, 500 companies um, focusing on marketing this tactical gear, which again, if you scroll through those social media accounts, I don't even know the sort of visceral reaction you're going to have. It's disgusting. And PLACA protects this. So there's one thing, Mike, like I know solutions are hard in a complex democracy. I get it. They are. We operate in the gray. But there's one thing that will hold gun companies to account. What we've done now is essentially like go to a college frat party and say, here's all the drugs. Here's all the beer. Nobody's getting in trouble. Check on you in a month. Right. It's, it's just not a good outcome. So here's the sort of tragic irony that I keep thinking about today, which is, you know, normally a, a horrific event like this happens and the, and the first impulse has been, it isn't anymore, okay, surely people will realize that at this point we need to do, you know, we need to pass common sense gun safety measures. Surely we can inspire people to come together on this issue. But now it seems to me that when an event like this happens, the opposite occurs, which is that the opposition to gun safety measures hardens because when things like this happen, it fuels the paranoia of, you know, and our, you know, again, not the responsible gun owners, but a significant portion of people out there, the people with the loudest voices, the activists who say this is, you know, a false flag. This is, you know, being used so that they can take our guns away from us. And yeah. then they start, you know, lighting up the switchboards in congressional offices and opposition hardens. How do you get past that cycle? I think you're, you're right, Dan. And, I, and I've thought about this a lot. There's a quote in my book. It, it goes something like the gun business is kind of like the booze business. It's pretty good when times are good and it's fucking great when times are bad. And um, that brings to mind this idea the gun industry can't, it's almost like it can't, it just can't lose. If it's threatened, it sells more guns. If people of color get shot at, more people of color buy guns to defend themselves from the radical whites. If the radical whites then feel demeaned or threatened by people of color, the radical whites buy more guns and then they threaten, like you see my point here, like it's, it's like this never ending storm that industry profits from no matter what. And if you profit from a storm, well, like, you're, you're praying for, for storm reports, right? So, I mean, it's, it's not good for our country. And that's why I think I don't have the answers to it all, but I do, I firmly believe, and I assert in the book that this gun issue is a lot more than just a gun issue to our country. I think the roots of our all or nothing divided politics and the sort of divided visceral culture war that we have that is now ripping, up, ripping us apart all the way out to like local school board races, like it has its roots in this 
unhinged all or nothing politics that really, you know, has no basis in rationality, like, like what you just said. I guess everybody that goes through these events, people in Texas now, everybody thinks maybe this is the moment it changes. I find myself thinking that I think perhaps we're just going to have to come up with one up to one of those moments and, and start making the change. I don't, I don't have a magic bullet, you know, pun intended. Meanwhile, we've got a Supreme Court decision regarding the right to carry guns that's coming up probably in the next, you know, six weeks, if not less. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of preview for our listeners what people think that decision is going to be about and what it's going to do to this debate. So in simple terms, that case, and I know you guys have talked about it, I think I've, I've heard uh, a pod or two with you chatting about that, but I'll, I'll sort of dumb it down for, for non-gun folks. Essentially, the New York State has a pretty restrictive law about how you can how one can obtain concealed carry permits and firearms ownership in New York. The law has been challenged, saying it's too restrictive and that it infringes on people's Second Amendment rights. Most court observers think that the Supreme Court, certainly this Supreme Court, is set to either completely trash New York's law or maybe narrowly, you know, rip at it, but maybe not trash it. And I think. Victoria, that's the question here. Does the Supreme Court say, okay, states, you can still impose some restrictions on guns, but you just can't be as as restrictive as New York was? Is that the decision? Or does it say, states, you can't keep people from owning concealed carry guns because it's part of their constitutional, it's, it's part of their constitutional rights, sort of, that would be the probably Scalia, Alito dream decision right there. I was going to say the the bottom line is is that there's there's one vision of this uh, decision that comes down which essentially makes it a constitutional right to just open carry a gun around you know yeah, wherever so, you want just walk into Times Square with a gun if you feel like it. So I, I I guess what I would say is I think some people think it would be awesome to have the whole country be Texas where that's what the law is, and I don't mean to shine too bright a light on it, but. We are talking about an event in Texas. Apparently, even millions and millions and millions of air quotes here, good guys with guns, aren't enough to stop this sort of irrational, unhinged, horrific actions by a teenage kid. Um, not, Not really all that dissimilar from the Buffalo event about the same age kid, about the same guns, about the same tactical gear. Like, I think it's pretty clear that the answer is not more people with guns in and around schools than there are people, but the Supreme Court may be set to, to force that course upon other states. From what we know, this kid, Salvador Ramos, I guess is his name, 18 years old, disaffected, outcast, buys uh, these two assault weapons just in the last few days yeah. legally. From what we know, is there anything that should have been done that could have stopped it or or is there any legislative fix that could stop something like this he didn't have a criminal record it's not clear he you know he had even was on the radar screen in terms of uh, mental health issues it's really hard to to see what could have been done here yeah you i tell think, me i i i think you're right um uh, mike i i it's when you look at any particular issue, you can always find all of these holes in the screen for everything to slip through and, and you can find them here too. My guess is there's enough 
somewhere in social media post or something where some red flag, were there a strong enough red flag law in Texas that something might have popped up. I do want to illustrate some truism about the way this particular kid bought guns, and it sort of illustrates how behind the times our national and state laws are. In most states, you can purchase a rifle when you're 18. You can't purchase a handgun until you're 21. The thinking is that in ye old golden days, a handgun was the most deadly thing that you could buy. It was the thing that you concealed. It was what criminals bought. So you couldn't purchase this thing until you were 21. But a rifle was what respectable gun-owning hunters, you know, these and target shooters use. So they would allow an 18-year-old kid to purchase a rifle. Well, that was before the AR-15 explosion onto the scene in 2005, up until now, so the last 15, 16 years, and the proliferation and the perfection of the way that AR-15 is marketed and used with all of these, you know, thousands of versions of AR-15 mag 30-round magazines, of which there are now many. Um, fuck Joe Biden, 30-round magazines, lock her up Hillary, Joe, 30-round uh, magazines, which Donald Trump Jr. favors. So this is really woven in. This this Uvalde case wasn't a political thing, but I'm warning that there are there are political actors like this who are being driven by marketing campaigns coming too. But my point here is we have this old law that says 18-year-olds can buy rifles, not handguns. You have to be 21. But now the rifles are the thing that are the most deadly. In other words, technology and our and our social our societal system has changed so much, our law hasn't kept up with it. We let 18-year-olds buy these unbelievably powerful guns. That happened in Parkland with Nicholas Cruz. It happened in Buffalo with an 18-year-old kid that bought an AR-15. It just happened in Uvalde. The kid bought it a day or two after he turned 18, but he couldn't purchase a handgun. Like There's, there's a way. I, I don't know that you'd fix it, you know, and you can't measure a negative, but I think stopping one of these goddamn things would be enough to motivate us to do it last question uh the nra is having its annual convention in texas this weekend yeah what timing i think ted cruz is expected to speak john yeah. cornyn interestingly suddenly had a scheduling conflict and chose not to appear but what do you expect we'll see from the nra this weekend will they be chastened at all how do you see this plan? I um, so I think it's very, you know, horrifically ir ironic. 1990, April of 1999, the Columbine shootings happened about 10 days before the scheduled NRA convention that was to happen in Denver. I write about that in my book. Soon after that, Charlton Heston went on his From My Cold Dead's Cold Dead Hands tour. And so the NRA did. They canceled the, the big part of their convention that they held their business meetings in 1999. And you know, recently, I know you guys have had Tim Mack on, but recently we've had the tapes uncovered where the NRA set the course, you know, for the most part, set the course for the country after 1999, after a shooting happened just before the convention. Now we have, for all intents and purposes, a very similar circumstance where a horrible school shooting has happened, not all that far and in the same state from where the NRA convention will happen. I don't think my gut tells me that the NRA has set this course it's very much like Republicanism, GOPism, or Trumpism now, like there is no backing down. There is no admitting fault. There is no apologizing. I'll be shocked. Really, I will truly be shocked, and I'm hard to shock if there is any kind of apology or any, any sort of hand-wringing about this. I think you'll see people try to ignore it, and you'll probably see some people speak out in a way that will be abhorrent. 
by the way, it should be pointed out that uh, Donald Trump issued a statement today, which I'll read here, Amer- in part, America needs real solutions and real leadership in this moment, not politicians and partisanship. That's why I will keep my longtime commitment to speak in Texas at the NRA convention and deliver an important address to America. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to the word salad that we'll get from that. We shall see. Ryan, I want to thank you again for your insights on this. And the uh, Ryan's book is Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Thanks again, Ryan. I just want to thank you guys, all of you, for having a smart, intelligent podcast and for having me on. So thank you. Thank you.